Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I'm low-key obsessed with Julian of Norwich, which if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you'll definitely know that by now. Today, the day this episode airs, is my birthday, May 17th, 1988. It was also Mother's Day here in the United States on Sunday. And finally, either the 13th or the 8th, um, the Latin numerals for 8 and 13 look very similar in many medieval manuscripts, marked the 650th anniversary of Julian of Norwich's strange encounter with God in the year of our Lord, 1373. So it's a big week, and I wanted to mark it myself on this podcast in a special way. For Julian is very special to me. Of all the medieval writers I study and adore deeply, she is most my teacher and my guide on this pilgrim's way, on the via caritatis, the path of love that characterizes following Christ. She's shaped my thought and my desire deeper than I can say. I hope her words have seeped into my very bones. I often think of her when I'm making decisions or facing something difficult or beautiful about myself, about God, or about other people. I would love to have a conversation with her, and I hope I can someday. So today, rather than having a guest on, um, in honor of these three occasions of the last week, some of them more minor than others, I am my own guest on Old Books with Grace, sharing about Julian of Norwich and her lovely, powerful meditations on Christ as our mother. First, let me straight up tell you that my not-so-secret hope is that you will read Julian of Norwich for yourself after this. Secondly, and relatedly, I could talk about this for days. So this is a very, very small fraction of Julian's beautiful wisdom about God and ourselves. Thirdly, if you like this episode, you will really love my forthcoming book. Um, I just shared the cover on social media and on my Substack, so definitely check that out if you haven't yet. But my book is called Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. And it's actually now available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and IndieBound and wherever you get your books. The fun thing is, is that there's a whole chapter on Jesus as our mother in medieval art and literature alongside some other fun things. So I'll link to it in the notes if you're curious and you can learn more about it at my Substack too, Grace Hammond. H-A-M-M-A-N dot substack dot com. Here's my little about me blurb, since normally you get them about a guest. Grace Hammond received her doctorate in English literature from Duke University in 2019. She's the author of a forthcoming new book. She is a writer and a mom of three who lives in Denver. So now, pretending as if I am my own guest, and I've thought about this a lot because I ask this question all the time, my two get-to-know-you literary questions for myself. Number one, who is my favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago? And since it's a Julian-themed episode, I can't answer Julian even though that would be my truest answer. So second best answer. This is way too cliched for a medievalist, but I have to say it, the Lord of the Rings trilogy 
When I first read it in seventh grade, it shook me to my core. I had dreams that I was a shield maiden like Eowyn. I gave a, uh, I gave some of my possessions, <laughs> like my scooter and my scarf, elvish names that I had looked up in the various appendices of The Return of the King. And as an adult, I still wish I could be Galadriel. I mean, Kate Blanchett's Galadriel in the movies is nearly as divine as the book version, which is a very, very tall order. And number two, which literary character do I most identify with and why? So as a young girl, I was very, very, very shy, as in refused to order my own meals at restaurants, shy, refused to get refills, shy. I was um, simultaneously very firm of character <laughs> to the point of being uh, quite judgmental at times, very shy, very quiet, but had a lot of big thoughts and big feelings, um, the joys of teenagerhood and pre-teenagerhood. I also was very worried that I was the most boring person in the world and that no boys would ever like me. Um, and to be honest, I still worry about being the most boring person in the world sometimes. So the character who comes to my mind is Fanny Price of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. <laughs> Appearances of boringness, check. Stirring resolve of character that's not immediately apparent, check. Acute social anxiety, check. Nursing long-term crushes, check. Um, and now this is, it's a little outdated now. This is really uh, talking as my teenage self, but I wasn't quite as virtuous and patient as Fanny Price. And I don't identify with her nearly as much as an adult, but um, as far as some of the first times that I recognize myself in a character, uh, it would have to be Fanny Price. But how much more fun would it be to be Elizabeth Bennet, which I am not. So on to Julian of Norwich. Who was she? What was her context? On the night of the 8th or 13th of May in 1373, Julian, who was 30 years old at the time, thought she was dying. She was in her bed. And in the practice of that time, a priest was holding a crucifix for her to look at in her pain. And to her amazement, Jesus on the crucifix began to bleed before her eyes and speak to her. Throughout the night, she experienced a series of what she called showings later, which were sights and words and sounds given to her by God. And she lived through the night, spoiler, she lived through the night, and she wrote these visions down into a book to share with her fellow Christians. Now, we know virtually nothing about Julian's life before her showings. Some folks uh, think that maybe she was a nun at a convent near Norwich. Some believe that she was a widowed mother because she writes about children uh, fairly frequently in her writings. Julian may or may not even be her real name. After her showings, she withdrew from the world and became an anchorite. And anchorites were men and women who lived in tiny cells connected to churches, and they often took the name of the church they lived in. And Julian lived in St. Julian's, Conisford, Norwich. So when someone became an anchorite and entered into that little cell on the side of the church, the priest would perform the services for the dead as if you had died. And that was the point. You died to the world outside. You were reborn again to live in solitude for Christ. 
Anchorites never left their cells. But this didn't mean that they lived in isolation. Julian would have had a window with access to other people. She had a maid who attended her who was not an anchorite. And in her role as an anchorite, Julian would have been known as a figure who prayed and gave counsel. And people actually would come visit her for her counsel or for her prayers. We know that Marjorie Kemp, another medieval mystical writer, actually did that at one point. But there were very strict rules around being an anchorite. You couldn't leave your anchor hold, your cell, but you could have a pet cat. You could have visitors. You could sew clothes for the poor, and you could accept donations from people for your ministry of prayer and sustaining yourself. Julian's primary role as anchorite was to pray, to pray for her community, to really be embedded in that parish that she was literally embedded into. Her cell had a window into the church itself from which she could see the priest celebrating Mass and partake in the Eucharist. Her life rhythms were structured by the liturgy, which is something that we can definitely pick up on in her deep, deep familiarity with Scripture in her, in her writings. And of course, she thought about and interpreted her great work, her showings. Julian's showings were complicated and difficult to understand, And so she spent 10 to 30 years meditating and praying about them before she was able to set them into the final version of her showings, which is sometimes published under editorial titles like the showings of Julian of Norwich or under the editorial title of Revelation of Love or Revelations of Divine Love. These are all the same work. She just didn't give it a title. A lot of medieval people didn't give their works titles, so... And it creates some difficulties for editors today. But Julian wrote in what we now call Middle English, which predates Shakespeare by about 200 years. The most famous Middle English writer was Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales. Um, And this was also, of course, before the printing press. So all her work that has survived is handwritten in a manuscript. She is the first woman writer in English whose work has survived, which is pretty cool. So one of the meditations that Julian spent a lot of time praying and thinking about was this idea of Jesus as our mother. Now, when we first hear the phrase, Jesus is our mother, perhaps you're a little bit uncomfortable or it feels a little weird. You might be thinking of some kind of fringy, strange, new age vibe, So um, it may come as a surprise to you to know that this idea is actually ancient and grounded in scripture. Uh, It was first sort of uh, written about extensively by monks um, and then contemplative writers of the Middle Ages. They're taking it out of these places where Jesus metaphorically describes himself as a mother hen in the Gospels. Jesus also performs traditional women's labor at times, and he also repeats, of course, um, and tells Nicodemus how we must be born again through himself. So painting himself in this mothering role. Of course, we're far more accustomed to think of God the Father, which is wonderful and given to us scripturally. And when we think of God as our Father, as we've been taught by Jesus in the New Testament, we're able to understand uh, truths about the powerful and unceasing love of God as our Father. And humans 
we are creatures of metaphor. So these kinds of images are really impactful and important to how we conceptualize abstract and difficult ideas. For instance, God, the character and action of God. So what can we learn about Jesus's character when we begin to think about him as a mother to us, as Julian of Norwich tells us? We'll turn to her words from chapter 60 of the long text of her showings. And I'm quoting from the translation by College and Walsh, which is published in the Classics of Western Spirituality series. Our great God, the supreme wisdom of all things, arrayed and prepared himself in this humble place, Mary's womb, already in our poor flesh, himself to do the service and the office of motherhood in everything. The mother's service is nearest, readiest, and surest. Nearest because it is the most natural, readiest because it is the most loving, and surest because it is truest. Now you'll notice that Christ's motherhood is especially tied to incarnation. As he takes on flesh, he takes on the office of motherhood, which is an office that Julian says only he does to the full. The incarnation becomes like a pregnancy. It's a protective and beautiful time of gestation for eternal life. And I really like how in that, in that description, we get this imagery of, of a womb within a womb. Um, she's talking about the incarnation of, of Jesus as um, motherhood, but she's also talking about Mary holding Jesus within her womb. Okay, back to the quote, why would Julian focus on those particular adjectives at the end, nearest, readiest, surest? Turning to her historical context of mothering can help us to understand. So in the 14th century, fathers definitely loved their children just as fathers have from the dawn of time, but they were less involved in the day-to-day tasks of caring intimately for a child's physical and emotional needs. So Fathers were not nearest, readiest, and surest in regards to a child's care. A mother was present, deeply physically present. And though I'm sure there were exceptions to the rule, most fathers were not changing diapers, dressing their children, being with them all day, um, and certainly not nursing them, breastfeeding them. Fathers could come and go much more easily, and they did often, and not even in a, in a pejorative sense, like not like a father leaving his children, abandoning his children, but just in the sense that they could come and go. And mothers couldn't really do that as much. Um, wherever the mother went, the baby went too. Now, near, ready, natural, loving, sure, true, these are the attributes of how Christ loves us as a mother, says Julian. These are the attributes of spiritual motherhood, the kind of mothering that belongs to both mothers who have given birth and mothers who have not, the spiritual mothers who show up for us in our great moments of need, nearest, readiest, surest. And this is the kind of presence that Christ has in our lives. Motherhood also entailed different biological demands on women in the 14th century as it does today. Julian focuses on these aspects when she describes Jesus' mothering as well. Um, So the Eucharist, she loves to think about the Eucharist as Christ's body feeding us, as Jesus nursing us. And the cross, she likes to, to describe and think about as labor. So again, in chapter 60, 
Our true mother, Jesus, he alone bears us for joy and for endless life. Blessed may he be. So he carries us within him in love and travail until the full time when he would suffer the sharpest thorns and cruel pains that ever were or will be. And at the last he died. And when he had finished and had borne us so for bliss, still all this could not satisfy his wonderful love. And he revealed this in these great surpassing words of love. If I could suffer more, I would suffer more. He could not die anymore, but he didn't want to cease working. Therefore, he must needs nourish us for the natural kind love of motherhood has made him our debtor. So Jesus is pregnant with us, the church, sustaining us within himself. Then he travails, which is an old word for labors. And this labor is filled with the most pain that anyone could ever imagine. Julian here draws together the passion and Christ as the laboring mother. And on the cross, Jesus births us into eternal life in his death. Now, Julian was not unusual or singular in this. Medieval people liked to compare the passion to labor. It might strike us as very morbid, but they saw it as full of rich possibility. It was a practical and a spiritual comparison. In the Middle Ages, there was an incredibly high mortality rate in childbirth for both mother and baby. Giving life to another little human was risky and costly and also truly generative and life-giving. Medieval people often meditated on the wounds of the passion in order to increase their love for Jesus and for their neighbor. And so something really interesting that they would do alongside all this motherhood imagery is that um, they would sometimes draw Christ's wound in his side that was pierced with the spear by the Roman soldiers um, to resemble um, a part of feminine bodily anatomy, a vulva. And it's not that these medieval artists were making a statement about Christ's bodily anatomy, but that they saw his wounds so powerfully as the place that we are born again, to use his own words in the gospel. Jesus' wounds are places of growth and fertility, a shelter for us where we're fostered and carefully tended to in the ways that we need. Christ births the church from his wounds. And his wounds welcome, heal, and shelter us in all our needy infant vulnerability. But even the passion itself, even birth itself, doesn't adequately testify to or fully satisfy his love. Christ will never stop in any possible labor of love for us, as Julian says. And he continues to lovingly parent us. And she uses this strong, interesting language of Christ being debtor to us. It is necessary, fitting, natural for him to feed us, for the dear love of motherhood has made him debtor to us. And this might initially make us a little bit confused or uncomfortable, because we ask God to forgive us our debts all the time in the Lord's Prayer. But here, again, Julian draws upon motherhood to describe something essential about who Jesus is and how he loves us. Humans are not the kind of animals who give birth and then let their offspring raise themselves, unlike some other kinds of animals. Mothers are awash in hormones after birth, which, of course, causes milk to come in, um, helps the body to heal faster, and uh, contains a lot of emotional response. 
it does weird things to sleep and to bodies and emotions. And um, last year I had read this fascinating book, Mom Genes by Abigail Tucker. And she describes how all different kinds of mothers, both biological and adoptive, have these intense hormonal changes and responses um, to their babies. So these changes allow them to hear their children's cries while sleeping. Um, Or if you're like out and about, you can immediately hear your child's cry at a park and your blood is pounding. Um, And it also gives mothers the ability to distinguish between the different types of crying of their children more than um, even fathers can because of this hormonal, this primal hormonal shift. Um, Of course, Julian had no clue about hormones, but I think she's recognizing these changes in mothers, this um, particular drive to protect and feed and raise their children as a good way to understand something inherent about Christ. Christ's love for his children constitutes his being. It is his nature. It is hardwired in him to hear us, to distinguish between our cries, to be present to us, and to love us with his whole body. Jesus as mother reminds us that we worship a God who labors with his own joy and pain in in Christ to birth us as whole people. Jesus is not invulnerable beyond suffering. Like human mothers, his heart walks outside of his body and he weeps and rejoices with his beloved children. Julian teaches us that he is infinitely more present, more willing, more listening, and more attentive than than any mother, um, spiritual, biological, adoptive, any kind of mother that we've ever encountered. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I hope you enjoyed me sharing some of my thoughts about Julian with you on this episode. There's actually only one episode left in season three. So coming up, I'll welcome Dr. Michael Lamb on to discuss Augustine and the virtue of hope. And I'm excited to share that with you. Don't forget, you can always find me online on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. And if you found this episode interesting or um, want to know more, I think that you will really like my new book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, um, which comes out in October. You can pre-order it wherever you buy your books, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and I'll have that in the show notes for you too. Thanks again for listening.